Welcome to the Apawa Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our church, visit us on any Sunday or online at opawa.org.nz. Well, if, if you're ripening into middle age, like me, and I can see that some of you are, very gracefully I might add, you may remember the old saying, why does the devil have all the best tunes? What I love about that is here's a great tune being reclaimed to tell the story of Jesus. Karl Barth, um, the greatest theologian of the last 400 years or so, so was, um, has been credited with refocusing the European Protestant church back onto the person work of Jesus. In the 1800s and 1900s, they'd kind of tried to blend and absorb secular philosophy and it hadn't worked very well. One critic of his accused him in a, in a church debate, but you're a Christomaniac, this guy said. To which Bart said, guilty. I played that song the other night at my home, and about a minute in, one of my children, one of my teenage children, went absolutely off at me. You're just so, so Christian, aren't you? Guilty. Glad you noticed. Well, today we're going to look at the work of Jesus Christ. And I'm reading from Luke 4, 14 to 21. I love having this TV up here. Do you watch soccer during the... Okay, <laughs> okay for, for Luke 4, 14 to 21. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. He's just been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. He returns in the power of, power of the Spirit. Very significant words, those. We often talk about Jesus being God, fully God. But he was fully human too. The miraculous things that he did were done in the power of the same Spirit that empowers us. He was not some sort of divine superman. He was truly one of us. So when we talk about our temptations or our fears, he knows what it is to be tempted or to be afraid. A superman wouldn't. I should stop at this point because this is a bandwagon I could jump on for quite some time. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He's, he's a sensation. His, his teaching is novel. It's bold and he's getting a really good response. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Their custom was to have a reading from the law and then one from the prophets, and then they'd have a sermon based on those things, a little bit like uh, the Anglican Church, where you have a, a reading from the Epistles, the Gospels, and the Old Testament. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. 
And he began by saying to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. To say that was a big call is an understatement. And there, Lingo, if you're anointed, you're a king. And Jesus proclaimed the year of the Lord's favour, which was the year of Jubilee, which comes from Leviticus 25. Special Sabbath-type year. You'd have seven lots of seven years, and at the end of it you'd have the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, if you had um, fallen on hard times and sold yourself into slavery to pay your debts, you'd be freed. Uh, Your debts would be paid And the land that the Lord had given your people when you first came into Israel would be given back to you, no matter what had happened to it in the meantime. And if you think about the life of an ancient agricultural community, it was sort of like a perfect version of their life. No one owed anybody anything anymore. And the blessings of God were all restored. It was a picture of life as it was meant to be lived. A a, a little glimpse of heaven, if you will. Interesting here in their glimpse of heaven, there are no wispy angels um, floating around clouds playing harps or having um, cloud fights and all that kind of stuff. Their picture of heaven is a very earthy, lived, experiential thing. A much better, a much richer version of the life that they were currently living. Now there's a song in the movie, Oh Brother, We're Out There. Anyone seen this? Oh, anyone not seen it? Oh, it's great. It's really good. And there's a song called The Big Rock Candy Mountain. Remember that? It's sort of this hobo or tramps version of what the perfect life would be. And one verse of it says this. In the Big Rock Candy Mountain, all the cops have wooden legs. And the bulldogs all have rubber teeth. And the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit and the barns are full of hay. I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the winds don't blow, and the big rock candy mountain. There's another verse which talks about the cigarette trees and the alcohol springs. It's a real Baptist version of life. But it begs the question, what is your perfect version of life? Because according to the historians... There's no evidence that Israel ever actually had a year of jubilee. And here is Jesus, the carpenter's son, proclaiming it. The carpenter's son of doubtful origins. They would not have forgotten that Mary was pregnant with him in her betrothal period before she was married. Do you think that Joseph was the father? Or maybe it was that Roman soldier down the road. What was his name? That rumour has survived the ages. Some still call him Jesus Ben Pantera after this supposed Roman soldier who was in the garrison town down the road. He knew what it was to live in shame. It would have been his lifelong companion. So this unmarried man, what's that about? Of dubious parentage, bastard if you will, is claiming to be king. God's anointed. Little surprise that they didn't fall at his feet and embrace his teaching. This passage is sometimes called 
the Nazareth Manifesto. It's like the speech that politicians give when they launch their election campaigns. Lila Hari, who is the new leader of the Internet Party, what on earth are you thinking, Lila, gave one this week. And she outlined the positions that she would take about you know, um, investing more in the internet and making it free and free education and these sorts of things. That's her manifesto. This passage was Jesus's. So Jesus' mission and how he understood it was anchored in both the law in Leviticus and this idea of the law of Jubilee and in the prophets and this vision of Isaiah. In the history of of the people of God in prior revelation. And if you think about all that he did in his public ministry, he preached, he healed the sick, he exorcised the demonized, he proclaimed forgiveness. He was about freeing people. This statement in Luke, it frames his entire public ministry, even his death. Freedom from ignorance, freedom from disease, the devil, sin, it's all there. Calvary proclaimed freedom from sin and all of its negative effects on our communion with God. All of its negative effects on our communion with God, on the state of our planet, on our relationships with everybody else, and on our own internal pain and brokenness. There is a fourfold impact of sin. As Jesus said in John 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. What does sin do? Fourfold. It mars our relationship with our creator. It blights our world. It corrupts our relationships with each other. And it breaks us on the inside. Now, I think sin, as a word, is often misunderstood as the things we do wrong. They are sins But sin is more a matter of trajectory or bearing. That Malaysian plane that recently tragically disappeared was heading for Beijing when it changed course and it was never seen again. The course change indicated that now it was heading for some other place, not Beijing. Another destination from that from which it was intended to go to. Same with us. For us, we follow God or we follow some other course of our own determining. We worship another God of our own creation or we worship ourselves. And following that other path, we leave the well-lit path with the air traffic control and all that kind of support for another one, a dark path. That is sin. And the Father understood, I think, how much damage idolatry, worshipping other gods, would do his people, which is why it was his first commandment and why if you read Chronicles and Kings, it was always what he was trying to keep his people safe from, to lead them back from. Now when we in the, in the Baptist church look at this passage, we usually major on the thing about freedom from sin, forgiveness, restoring our relationship with Jesus based on his death on the cross. Our chains have been broken. We've passed from a a deathly life to a life without death. We're saved. It was once explained to me, that Rod, that when the Father looks at you, it's like he's got Jesus' coloured lenses on and he sees the purity and the goodness of his Son when he sees you. All true. 
all true, and it's right to celebrate it. But it's a very hard reality to take in, I think. So often we are troubled by false guilt. And by false guilt I mean the guilt for sin that has already been confessed and dealt with. I am sure this is where the Roman Catholic idea of penance grew up from. So you've sinned? Well, say sorry, say Lord's Prayer ten times, hail Mary fifteen times, and sweep out the hall in the church. And when you've done that, you probably feel a lot better. You probably feel forgiven. Because there's been a consequence. You had to do something. It's really psychologically difficult for us, I think, to accept that we are free. But it's true. We are free from sin. Our relationship with our loving Father has been restored. But do you live in freedom, true freedom, from false guilt? Second impact of sin is on our world. Romans 8, fascinating passage, powerfully says that the world itself, the planet, is groaning under the weight of sin is bound by the law of decay and quite keen to be free from it. I imagine the planet, if it has a heart, would also be quite keen to be free from what we've done to it as well. I'm no greenie. Don't get me wrong. I believe in development and all that kind of jazz. But it riles me that you cannot go to a stream in New Zealand and have a drink of water without risking getting giardia because some lazy people have peed in it. It's a tragedy that whole fisheries don't exist anymore because people were too greedy to look after them. We've killed the goose that laid the golden egg. And likewise, there are whole regions of the world that have been turned into gravel where nothing useful can grow because of mining with no regard for anything beyond profit. That is the slag heap outside a copper mine. Nothing will grow there. Ever, I suspect. Hope the copper was worth it. I hold on to the vision in Revelation 21 of a new heaven and a new earth. That one day when sin is no more, you and I will be able to walk around a renewed and whole Christchurch in Canterbury when the world is finally restored to be as it should be. When it too is freed, truly freed from the bondage of sin. Third impact of sin is on our relationship with each other. Now you can see this on a global scale right down to a family scale. First global. It interests me that Ghana, you know the little country of Ghana in Africa, is the world's second largest producer of cocoa. What do you use cocoa for? Very important food group. Chocolate. But Ghana hardly makes any chocolate at all. The reason is not instability. Ghana's actually quite stable. It's on track to becoming a a developed country in the next 10 or 15 years. The reason is that European and North American markets are very happy to take imports of cocoa, but they are not very happy to take imports of chocolate from Ghana. And that pattern is repeated all through the world. All manner of commodities, wood, oil, diamonds, whatever. The wealthy West us, look after our own, and devil take the hindmost in the third world. 
But it's not only the West that does this. I was in Phnom Penh, Cambodia a little while ago, visiting a missionary I know who works in the slums over there. And he had got, and his neighbours had got together to build a drain outside in the lane outside where they lived because it kept pooling with water. Every time there was, it was a bit like um, Flockton Basin, every time there was a rainstorm, it, it just fill up. Now it hadn't always been like that. What had changed? Well, a good socialist cabinet minister had bought a bit of land next door and had built a compound. And now all the water was displaced onto these poor people's front yard along their, along their properties. He didn't care. And there was no way there to challenge his actions or get any redress. Selfishness rules okay. But it's not just the developing world communities that are beset by sin. It's ours too. And I want to tell you a story about my wider family because it's been seriously damaged by greed and favouritism. As far as I can tell, it started with my great-grandfather who came here from Manchester in the um, 1860s. And when they opened up the King Country in the North Island for settlement in the late 19th century, he trotted up there and being a farmer's son, he could look at all these stands of native bush and see farmland beneath them. And so he bought up as much as he could, big blocks of land. He had eight kids, as you did in those days, and he left each of his children a ninth share of all this land. A ninth because he was particularly fond of one of his sons-in-law. And so he left him a share as well. So that family got two shares. Every other one of his children got one. The ripples of that decision made 100 years ago have abated somewhat now, but there have been decades of bad feelings since. My grandfather, who was the eldest, felt like the black sheep who had to prove something. So he built his own farming empire. Later in life, he decided to rewrite his will and disinherit his four children, four sons, in favour of his six daughters. A court case followed, which predictably overturned that will, but meant that many of us did not know our cousins as we grew up because our parents didn't talk to each other for 20 years. Then in my mother's generation, that family... Three of her siblings have got into the same situation. My aunt and uncle sold their farm to my cousin and gave him half a million dollars worth of stock to go with it without telling their other three children until the deal was done. You can imagine the consequences in that family. Another family, I understand, are now not talking to each other because of a squabble about how much the farm should be valued at, which has been gifted. But the piece of resistance is a third. Recently, um, last year, my uncle died. And it was discovered after his death that not, instead of being the multi-millionaire they all thought he was, his estate was worth about $60,000. Because what he'd done during his lifetime is he'd given away his farm to one of his five children. All done and dusted. In the course of all his secret giving, it turned out that he'd left his wife penniless and effectively disinherited four of the five kids. Now, it says in the Bible, the sins of the father are visited upon the third and fourth generation. I think this is what it's talking about. I don't think there's an evil spirit in our family. I think it's rather that we repeat, or we are shaped by, 
the sins of the people that raise us. If anybody knew not to do the favouritism, not to do this disinheriting thing, it was that uncle. He'd seen the whole thing play out, but he still did it. Sin corrupts us. It embitters us. In my family's case, it's bred envy, bitterness, greed and favouritism. It corrupts families, workplaces and churches. Anywhere where people gather, we bring our own dysfunctional needs to the table. And lastly, sin, I think, corrupts our very selves. I know many pastors that are control freaks who are threatened, profoundly threatened, by the presence of talented people in their congregations. Are they bad men? Not particularly. They're insecure men, I think. It's also why people lose themselves in workaholism, worry about their finances, or the overweening need to protect their children from everything that could possibly go wrong. It's insecurity. I'll give you an example. When I was um, a youth pastor, our youth group attracted several of Karori's um, most wanted teens, well known to local police. Great thing for our mission. I remember one kid who was expelled from multiple schools but never gave me a hint of trouble because I think youth group became the one place in his life where he didn't carry that reputation and didn't affect how people were with him. I had to alter my camp forms from saying no drugs or alcohol, please, to no drugs, alcohol or weapons after one guy came to youth group with a bag that made a very metallic clean sound. And as I searched for it, he had a whole lot of knives rattling around. And he's now in the army. Probably found his niche. But I knew I had to keep these kids away from the parent, the conservative Christian parents. In fact, the less they knew about each other, the better. Because if these people had realised that these people were there, the conservative Christian kids would have been pulled out. Many of us send our kids to youth group to be kept safe, not to be kept part of God's mission. How about you? Many of us have a need for significance, particularly middle-aged guys like me. What will people think if we drive a crappy car or work at a low-status job, Rob? Money pushes all the buttons. It can be a score of our wealth, our worth, our worth, sorry, our security and money, or a measure of our status. If I'm a man of means and I am someone, is the internal monologue that many of us live with. It can be the external monologue that we heard from our parents or our partners as well. For me, My struggle has been trying to unlearn the strategies that got me through a very difficult childhood. There was no safe person that I could unload with. So I internalised everything I went through. Bullying, the grief, the loneliness. And I grew up to see life through the lens of being a man alone. I survived, that strategy worked. But now at 48... I'm still in the process of learning to name my feelings and needs. Still far better at giving than receiving, at thinking rather than feeling. True freedom for me will be when it's okay to be vulnerable or to show weakness. 
but I'm still very much a work in progress on both those things. Well, if we are unsatisfied with ourselves, well, we can always live through our kids, can't we? When my wife, Steph, used to work at this quite high-class bookshop in Karori, all the grandmas would come in to buy books for their grandchildren, and they'd say, Dear, have you got something for my little grandchild? So how how old is she? Four, but she's very gifted. What these five-year-olds or four-year-olds made of a thousand pages of War and Peace, I don't know. (laughs) I remember a soccer game that my son was in. And um, there was a boy there who was a particularly good soccer player, really into it. And he made a screaming mistake early on. A real he, kicked, he was a defender and he kicked the ball across his own goal. You, apparently you don't do that, it's a hanging offence. Anyway, no, no harm was done, they got away with it. He then went on to play the game of his life. He was everywhere, he scored goals, he set up goals. They eventually won this game about 4 or 5 1. And I walked up to say something to him at the end. But his father got there first. And do you know what his father was saying to him? That mistake you made at the beginning. And when his father went away, I just went up to this kid and I said, look, mate, you were my man of the match. But he needed to hear that from his dad, not from me. Sin breaks us four different ways. And it's profoundly damaging. I have my stories, you'll have yours. So why give to missions? Remember I said that's what I was going to be talking about? Very long introduction, wasn't it? (laughs) Hope you haven't got anything on this afternoon. Well, very briefly. Jesus' manifesto shows that his heart was with those who were not free. He wanted freedom for them. Release of the captives. Healing of the blind. Those who can't see, who are bound up by physical disability. Those who can see but can't take it in. He wanted freedom for them. Now we say we follow Jesus. Then how could we not support the sharing of the gospel with those who are enslaved to sin. How could we not? How could we not support clean water initiatives in a sin-scarred environment like Bangladesh with TCDC? How could we not? How could we not support the freeing of sex slaves in Calcutta? How could we not? We give to the poor because that's where God's heart is. He wants them to know freedom, and in a small way, we can get behind what he's doing already and help. But it's not just for their freedom. If we give with no expectation of a return, no karma, you'll be blessed back, we just give because we give, no payback, no compulsion, then that is the act of a truly free person. We are expressing our freedom from the need to hang on to money and all the crap that goes with that, all the insecurities that are tied up with that. Now if you, like me, are not that free yet, selfless giving is still a really good step in that direction of freedom. 
So give for their freedom and give for your own. So if you're here next week and they pass the plate again, dig deep. Cheers.